0: I'm here. Are we oh, live? Okay. Yes, we're live? we're live. Yes. That's exciting. We're live. We're live. We're <laughs> back. It's it's 2021. Uh, Tarrant, happy new year. Uh, I think Tarrant's hopping off camera. And uh, we're back. It's this week in higher ed. Uh, I'm Mike Palmer. And uh, Dr. Terry Givens uh, is here, as always, with me. And today, we're also joined by uh, Dr. Mordecai Brownlee, uh, uh, who will be our guest for the news of the day. Welcome. Welcome, Mordecai.
1: Hey, I'm glad to be here. Happy New Year. Thank you all so much for the opportunity. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, well, we're excited to have you. Uh, We saw a really interesting article from you out of uh, EdSurge, where I know in addition to many of the things that you do, one of the things you do is write uh, some some really interesting stuff for EdSurge around developmental education and uh, co-requisites as opposed to prerequisites, which uh, which is really, was interesting to me. And I, I definitely, there's lots to dive into there. And then also, uh, I believe you're, uh, well, uh, can you can you just quickly introduce yourself uh, while we're while we're going here, just so folks know who you are?
1: Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, greeting educators and all those that are alike. And uh, so, Mordecai Brownlee, been serving in higher ed now for almost 16 years. Uh, currently served as Vice President of Student Success at St. Phillips College in San Antonio, Texas. It's a 122 year old community college that is a historical black college. That is also a hispanic serving institution which is the only one in the nation mm-hmm. and i also serve as an adjunct instructor professor for university of charleston and morgan state university and i am also a higher ed columnist for EdSurge.
0: right right in your free time in your in your copious but there was quite a lot in that so like st phillips is really inter- it was also news to me i hadn't really heard about it prior to doing some prep uh, about uh this in f- for this show but um the fact that it's both an HSI and an HBCU sure. was news to me and then also as a community college that's focused on that community colleges are something uh we've talked about a bunch it's it's they're emerging much more as uh potentially the powerhouse of, of some of the turnaround that everyone's hoping for so yes. uh, so we definitely wanted to dive in the dive into the stuff about the um the developmental education uh but we also want to understand a little more about your your experiences around uh you know the St. Phillips and what it's like to be an urban community college in this this crazy time that we're living in um so so we'll get into that and uh welcome uh Mordecai welcome everyone who's who's watching and uh, and welcome back Terry, we're in a different platform. We're, we're yes. in Zoom. It's, it's <laughs> all
2: flowing comfortably now.
0: Everything seems to be working wonderfully. How are you? How, how were your holidays? How was your break?
2: Oh, it was great. Um, we had a, a nice restful break. Uh, I, my two boys are home. I have one who's in college at uh, Lewis and Clark College in Portland and one who's in high school. And so they really appreciated the break. I know um, it's been, they've both been doing pretty well with the uh, you know online and, and my son a, a, in Portland is their hybrid. So mm-hmm. he, w- he came home and he'll be going back in another week and a half to yeah. be hybrid again. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have uh, any major well not even any small outbreaks at his campus so they were yep. not i'm uh, knocking on wood that that happens again um but uh you know here in california more generally it's really just uh, what's happening in southern california night right now is just horrifying mm-hmm. um they're having to ration care they've yep. got uh you know ambulances backed up. I, yeah. I mean, it, mortuaries are turning people away. It's,
0: yeah. it's it was just... it's reminiscent of what we had in, um, in Brooklyn, you know, what we had in, in the yes. New York area in the spring. Yes. But it, you know, it that peaked and then ebbed, you know, like we we were we were it was horrific, but we were able to recover, you know, within a month or so, it was it was back on the right track. It does seem like these numbers are more like a steady state, not mm-hmm. so much like a peak, which is what's really um, You know scary about the time that we're living in Uh, and then flip side is that you know we have the vaccine coming uh i don't think we've heard really from folks in texas uh mordecai around like what's it been like uh for you because you've been you've been in san antonio uh really throughout this and understanding also how it's been for, uh, for folks at St. Phillips, which uh, I'm sure uh, there, there's plenty going on there. So any perspective you could share? Yeah, yeah,
1: you know, I mean, and certainly my thoughts and prayers are with all who have been impacted by COVID-19. I mean, I've, I've lost uh, family members mm-hmm. uh, due to COVID-19. We've had some, some significant impact. Even at the college, we even lost uh, uh, an, a fellow employee that was within our division. Um, and so it's it's uh, it's it's a crisis. It's a global pandemic, and so many people are being impacted. The world is being impacted. I will tell you specifically for Texas, it's uh, it's been a bit scary, right? So if you if you look at uh, the ABCs and the NBCs, and you look at some of those those lines from the food bank, waiting how long it's been to to receive services from from food bank services. San Antonio, Texas, has been on featured on a lot of those different segments that have ran our San Antonio food bank, who we partner with. Matter of fact, we have another event. Every third Thursday, uh, since we've been been uh, doing this, uh, uh, going through this pandemic experience, our college has been a food pickup site uh, for that side of San Antonio. Yeah. so That's helped to uh, alleviate part of the challenge. And right before we, we started recording, I shared with this team that San Antonio, Texas, um, for the past four years now, has been uh, listed as the most impoverished Uh, metropolitan city in the country surpassing Detroit about four years ago so that reality about poverty for us is very very significant and you know the scariest thing we experienced it the other day about uh, five days ago I'm sitting there having dinner with my family and all of a sudden our cell phones start blaring with this alert saying stay at home numbers have spiked again and then it's always that eerie feeling after your cell phone goes off. Like, what is this reality that we're really living? So, yeah, yeah. yes, the numbers have been heading in the wrong direction mm-hmm. um, between here, Houston, and other areas, especially El Paso and Texas, thinking about yeah. El Paso. So, so yeah. some significant numbers. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, our, our our hearts go out to everybody. Yes. Uh, and very sorry for your loss and for everyone who's sort of suffered in, in many ways. And, uh, yeah, and then we're trying to uh, – look ahead a bit uh, i think you know it is the new year so it is a time for us all to you know reset uh, hopefully turn the page a- again uh, you know the there is hope around uh, the vaccines getting out there hopefully they'll get out there faster i think that's the other the other topic is just you know how quickly the operations and logistics supply chain stuff uh also a lot of talk about like needles and arms it's almost like people need to dial down the talking about like I understand how vaccinations work but uh that's a side point uh but um I think there's a little bit of uh hope but uh, the numbers are just so difficult that the ability to even do hybrid is a question I think for for many of us do, any perspective uh maybe beginning with you with uh Mordecai like how you're how you've been grappling with those types of decisions around what what can you do in person, what do you need to go hybrid, what could you do online, particularly for um, for an urban community college, uh, an HSI and HBCU. Yeah. I, I imagine some of the considerations might be different than people's typical considerations when they think about making these types of decisions. Um, can you share a little bit about what it's been like for you uh, over this uh, maybe you know back from the spring right through now?
1: Absolutely. So I will, I will say that uh, to kind of give uh, the, the viewers and listeners a, a kind of a picture of what St. Phillips College looks like. Uh, we, we, we have a two primary campuses, uh, we, one that we call the Martin Luther King Campus, the other we call Southwest Campus, which is a converted Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. For those that are familiar with San Antonio, Texas, and, and, and as they call it, Military City, USA. I live right across the street from Randolph Air Force Base. So, uh, due to BRACs in the area, this community has been pretty creative in terms of what it's done with this infrastructure. With that said, so, um, you know, part of our reality, 30% of our academic portfolio is career and technical education programs. That in itself is a significant implication for those that are aware and know about CTE programs, because when you're dealing with their accrediting bodies of those CTE programs, you're dealing with lab spaces that Mm -hmm. must be maintained. One of those programs for us is aircraft mechanic. If a student misses eight hours of lab instruction, that's it, the program is over for them. So so to deal with that reality and still attempting to pull that off for so many of our students who are awaiting jobs and the jobs are awaiting them, We really had to do everything that we possibly could do to still maintain those accrediting contact lab hours mm. um, and still meet CDC standards and Metro Health mm. standards and all these. So, so that's been a bit of a challenge. It's it's been brought about some implications. And then you have other CTE programs like health sciences that many colleges and universities share. Or thinking about welding, you know, you cannot weld at home, clicking a mouse and watching magic happen. It just doesn't work that way. So you still yeah. have to have that lab instruction time. So we've been doing our absolute best to still work through that uh, and meet all guidelines standards to still usher our students through. And as I'm sure you can imagine, major significant impacts to that, but we're doing the best that we can, as well as still offering that online asynchronous synchronous. And so we're doing the, everything that we can, knowing the realities of our students and certainly encouraging edu- educators that are listening to this to do what you can to have those asynchronous situations because there is no telling what may be going on in someone's life during the time that they were scheduled to take that class. However, if yeah. I can get back to that video or get back to that assignment later on in the day, it mm-hmm. still helps me to be able to succeed.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, plus they can do it wherever they are too, which is the other right. uh, the other thing. There's another topic that uh, that that's come up a lot, which is around um, the digital divide. Um, yes. Yes. Is that something you've had experience with, with your population? I would imagine particularly as you had to move things online, you probably had to confront that directly. I'd love to hear any 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 perspective or any uh, anything you've experienced that might help flesh that out for because we talk about it in the abstract, but I feel like you might have lived it uh, a little bit more.
1: And, and you know, in true reality fashion, so it's either I can act like this didn't happen or just embrace the fact that it happened. my two year old girl, Hey, girl has <laughs> nice. decided to, to run into the nice. office nice. and tell me that her toe is hurt and now she's running away, right? So okay. side note, nice. let's get back to this, right? Yeah. So I'll take care of her toe later. So, you know, part of this digital divide, right, has been that, that um, you know, what can we do for, for gap closure and caring for our students who are experiencing high levels of poverty? I mean, one of the realities, even at St. Phillips College, pre-COVID, one of our uh, commencement speakers who we honored, and he's a young man, he's doing extremely well, but just to use him as, a, as, a, as an example, uh, both of his parents died of drug overdoses at separate times. He lived on park benches and was using the light of his cell phone to do his homework assignments mm-hmm. at night and still managed to have a 4.0 GPA. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about students that have that kind of resilience, but that kind of reality, and you're realizing that that's on a mass spread, it's not just these one-off situations, and you talk about the digital divide, then we have to be sensitive as to what we do programmatically and what we provide from a resource standpoint to close the gap for these students. And so it, it is a strong responsibility upon the colleges to make sure that as we talk about innovation, that doesn't necessarily spell access. Innovation and access is an assumption in itself. The real innovation is enclosure of those who don't have access.
0: Yeah, yeah, I almost immediately went to the the VR visor when you were talking about your labs being closed. And uh, that's sort of, a, maybe, maybe in time too, you know, so like I wouldn't rule it out. And if folks are interested, maybe, you know, hook St. Philip's up with a new VR lab or VR's from home, but that, that's a whole nother story. But, um, but Terry, how about your experience around this or like what you're hearing out there around, um, the the access question i mean you know for your son he's he's doing hybrid stuff um you know even you know you have a high school student at home as Mm -hmm. well um have have you heard about this have you yeah
2: well you know the bigger problem in k through 12 right now is students are disappearing and you know we need to be able to figure out ways to stay in contact and so some teachers are actually going out physically and going to students homes to find out how they're doing and and mm-hmm. to see if they and the school my my son goes to, they've provided Chrome, and we, we're lucky to live in Silicon Valley because you know they've provided Chromebooks. They're providing hotspots, yeah. um, you know. But the problem is, even if you have a Chromebook and a hotspot, if you're in a house, I mean, th- so I'm sure this is true in San Antonio, and even for the college students, if you're in a house, you know, a small three-bedroom house with ten people, you know, or, or you know, even five people, it, it's hard to find a space to you know be able to have quiet to you know because i think about this i work with several organizations uh, college success programs for for low-income students and um yes yeah, a room of one's own as, as deborah pointed out it, it's really hard to find a space just to you know, even in our house my well partly because my son has ADHD, he, he has to sit at the dining room table with my husband. We can't just, you know, he has his own bedroom, but we, we can't leave him alone. So so that's another factor. What if your child has um, learning issues? I mean, my son, I I was literally fighting with the school district um you know at the beginning of the semester to make sure they were taking care of the kids with adhd and all these other issues and they finally started some things and then my son decided he didn't need it but you know i wasn't just fighting for my son i was fighting for all those other kids um you know who need that extra support and aren't getting it right now because part you know i can't blame the teachers because weren't given enough time to prepare. And, you know, because partly because I think one of the bigger issues was that we were going back and forth between whether we were going to be in person or going online this fall. We we waited too long to make that decision.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like now, like moving forward, you always, all of your contingency plans will include going online. It's also the, the death of the snow day. I'm still, I'm still fired up. (laughs) <laughs> about that like that's i also have a two-year-old uh, mordecai so so maybe we can do like a, a virtual play date but but when, sure my two, when my two-year-old is seven and there's uh snow so that hybrid classes are canceled uh dad may take uh son to uh to ride on his sled because that's a that's there's a there's a whole lesson plan to be done about you know the learning objectives you get you learn how to slide down a hill you learn how to throw snowballs there's all sorts of things there but uh but what about the angle uh, around the the whole student or the whole family, the community uh, and how, you know, you mentioned poverty, like in many ways poverty is um, it's such a fundamental problem in our society, but it's almost like there's a stigma around even talking about it. Um, Can you talk about what it's like to be confronted with poverty in your student body and then, Trying to you know engage with them in like a community ga- community based family based way.
1: You know, I think it's so important to uh, remember, and I, I even have my own personal uh, testimonies raised by a single mother. and uh, you know <clears throat> we, we we had our our share of sacrifices. i'm I'm grateful for a mother who who was relentless, uh, no matter whatever the challenges that we faced, but we faced those challenges. And so it also has opened up my heart in terms of understanding as an educator, just how much our students have to overcome in order to show up in that classroom. And that's literally and figuratively, right? And so we cannot take for granted um, (laughs) what what all that person had to overcome. And so it's so important then, as educators, especially as we progress through this, this next decade, this next era of higher education, COVID and post COVID of having the right level of sensitivities on how we manage our classrooms, electronic and in-seat, um, to be able to create these learning spaces that have the right balance between structure and grace, right? That have the right balance between uh, how to engage and how to incorporate and how to make all a part of that learning experience, because each and every one of our students are dealing with some some different realities.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's true of uh, faculty and staff too, you know, like as in a leadership position, you know, you have to understand all all folks, including yourself, you know, like the importance of self-care, the importance of, um, you know, communication about self-care um, is, is something that, I think there's a new awakening around a lot of this stuff. Uh, Terry, I know you've talked a lot about uh, communication. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in fact, yeah, I may have heard you say, Communication, communication, communication <laughs> on, on a few occasions, but uh, but what? any thoughts to folks who are in leadership positions? I'll have to hear from you as well, Mordecai, but maybe just beginning with you, Terry, like thoughts for what it's like to be in a leadership position right now in these difficult times and any advice or um, suggestions for folks who may have to do that community outreach and engage in those difficult conversations?
2: Well, you know, I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction, riffing off of
0: what Deborah is saying is,
2: you know, we leaders need to be modeling behavior. And we've seen over and over and over again, leaders, you know, going off to Mexico, going off to, you know, going to a restaurant, you know, all these things that we're not supposed to be doing. So I'll I'll just, I'll get that out of the way, because it's very frustrating to see leaders who aren't, you know, they aren't doing as they say. Um, And but then, you know, in terms of communication, one of the things that keeps coming up in um, when I'm, you know, uh, connecting with my friends on social media who happen to be faculty or administrators is is the lack of communication. And I know a part of it is, and I'm sure Mordecai, you, we both have been in this position where you just don't know enough to be able to tell people, and so you That's try right. to you're trying to wait and wait until you get firm information, so you're not putting something out too early. Or because you know it's it's a double-edged sword because you know, and part of the reason the School district, for example, was waiting to tell parents what the plan was going to be, is because they weren't sure what the plan was going to be. Right. But my argument is, okay, tell the parents that you aren't sure. Right. <laughs> no, if you leave it to silence, that the problem is with silence is everybody's going to fill it in with their own thoughts and ideas of what's going on that's where you get the conspiracy theories oh my god mm-hmm. i could tell you uh, you know from the parent emails and and not, not just in, for the high school but for the college i'm on a facebook group for our, our, my son's college and the parents the stuff they come up with I'm, and i feel like as a as a former administrator i have to jump in and say look there there the stuff you know you're going a little too far (laughs) they're really doing their best they have your students you know best and your best interest in mind and that's the thing to remember is we're all coming from a place of of, you know hopefully love for what we do Mm -hmm. and that we're not trying to I I can't tell you how many times I see that oh you know these evil administrators are like no no, right. that's not how it works. We love well, you guys, but <laughs> and
0: you and you know, and you you uh talk uh eloquently about grace uh and empathy. Uh you know, I, I heard Mordecai, one of my words that I of the year for uh 2020 was grace, and I, I think we mm-hmm. certainly continue to need it in uh in 2021. And I always see grace and empathy as, as kind of going hand in hand. You're you're it's it's easier to be to offer grace if you can empathize with someone. And then if you can begin from a place of grace that sort of is respecting the other's humanity to the point that you, it's easier to empathize with them. Um, I think from a communication perspective, you're right, uh, Terry, I I think people need to understand how it's hard to be uh, an administrator and you don't, you really shouldn't be talking a lot about your struggle but there is an element of your humanity that I think needs to be there in your communication. Yeah. Otherwise it's going to ring hollow, you know? One of
2: my big things is, is administrators are human beings too. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. So, yeah, and Mordecai, please jump in. I'm sure you've had some experience with this. You,
1: know, you know, y'all, you, you you both are striking a chord because it's it, in the midst of a pandemic. So many of us have had to attempt to act as though it's not happening. i think that was the error in itself right the error in itself was attempting to happen as though it was not happening whereas we should all have been relaying a message of we're in this together (laughs) you're dealing with something i'm dealing with something yet especially in the education field it's still my job my role to empower you that one day we will move beyond this and then how do we care for ourselves our family and, and add value to society as a whole and so It's just, it's been uh, our communities, our respective communities that we've had to lean on. You know, I've had some conversations with with fellow colleagues around the nation, uh, just encouraging one another because all of these different challenges that are happening in our respective communities. And then on top of that, depending on where you are, Your college or your university has been dealing with layoffs or furloughs. And and so not only are you dealing with a pandemic, but now you're dealing with your livelihood Mm -hmm. and and, or that in question, and you're still supposed to be supporting and serving. And so it's a lot on everybody. And uh, I think that communication piece, to Terry's point, is more the reason why we should let people know, hey, this is where we are. I wish I could tell you more. Hopefully I'll know more tomorrow or this is where we stand. It's not the reality we would like. People appreciate knowing because emotions and thoughts and imaginations are yeah. real.
0: <laughs> right. Well, it reminds me of, uh, you know, a big part of leadership is just showing up. And if you could have kind of like a a Delta Airlines uh, mentality towards crisis management, I'm just throwing Delta out randomly, but like we're going to communicate you about the flight at six o'clock And at seven o'clock and eight o'clock, we're going to hit these marks. Same thing, you know, if there's like a shooting and the police say, we're going to we're going to give you a report at this particular time. And then they show up. If they don't know, then be honest about not knowing it. But I think it's the idea of hitting a regular interval and delivering on your commitments and then also being willing to have the hard conversations. That's another thing uh, from 2020 that that certainly resonated with me is like. You know being avoidant which is i think a natural human tendency almost became a luxury that we couldn't really afford anymore so um mordecai i would love to hear from you a little more about the the hsi and um hbcu side of it uh as well where you mentioned how you know your network you know by virtue of being uh, the only university or the only college that is connected to both of those things at the same time. I imagine you're tapped into a really interesting cross-section of higher education. Um, any perspectives you've gotten from there? Are there ways in which uh, you're staying connected to both of those uh, those communities?
1: Well, i would tell you part of, of uh, St. Phillips College has been that, that it, it is entrenched in our history of knowing that we started as a school for Emancipated female slaves to teach them how to cook and how to sew and mm-hmm. so trade has been a part of our history. Um, uh, you know, career and technical education before it had that name right before it took on the name of vocational education that has been as part of our reality access has been a part of our reality. Mm-hmm. And the innovativeness of the times of uh, you know we were founded in uh, 1898 but thinking about just the history of higher education in the early 1900s and what so many institutions had to do to keep their doors open. So now you get into some integrated learning experiences as well. Uh, and then also for those who know the history of higher education, you know, while you may have had a religious church funding, founding and funding as an institution, then essentially have, having to become a public entity and the realities of that. So all, I say these things to say that as time has gone on, St. Philip's College, um, I'm very proud to serve an institution that understood what it took and the sacrifices it took to not only maintain its mission of access and opportunity for all, but just how it had to pivot through time through the various funding and structural challenges and, and being taken on by the city's independent school district model and, and then having to establish yourself as an official community college and going through the accreditation experiences and so over time, you know, I say these things because as even today, we hear the funding challenges, you know, what's happening with state appropriations, what's happening with federal government challenges, what's happening with tuition and and fees. And these are realities that aren't new. (laughs) They've been happening in some form or fashion over time. And yet we still find a way to make it happen for our communities. And I think that the reality is, is that even though St. Philip's Uh, was structurally situated and developed within a historical black side of town for San San Antonio, has now over time has grown to where it's predominantly a Hispanic community, period, as -hmm. well as a Hispanic sector and service in which how we serve. So over 60% of our students are Hispanic or Latinx. uh, And then you deal with roughly 12% fluctuating around African Americans, blacks. Uh, and so that's just our makeup while we understand that we're not predominantly a black institution. We understand that we're a historical black yeah. institution and we're grateful for that continued uh, 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 tie in history, as well as the funding of Title III itself opens up some amazing doors mm-hmm. for us to continue to serve not only African-American students, black students, but all students yes. uh, to receive the resources associated with that. And so it allows for us to continue to keep work going and it's so unique it's amazing and to be the only one in the nation it's just an absolute honor
0: yeah
2: um yeah i think that's it's interesting because you know you you guys have been through the whole process of you know the black black uh hbcu you know hbi hispanics hsi yep, yep, <laughs> okay. yep. right, i gotta learn these acronyms <laughs> acronyms um but um you know, it's even at Menlo College, when I was a the provost there, we had nearly we were almost at the point where we could have been designated Hispanic serving institution. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, know, it has, you know, Menlo College is a small, only 800 student, um, you know. It tradition in years past that had been a two-year college that turned into a four-year college and, and was kind of seen as a pathway to get into Stanford for, well, to put it bluntly, white guys to get into Stanford who didn't get in the first time. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting to Um, think about how our institutions are changing demographically. This is something I really beat the drum on is that this is not just happening at HSIs and HBCUs. It's happening across the country. So Menlo College, you know, went from being predominantly white to predominantly uh, black and Latino in the space of 10 years Mm -hmm. um, from from 2005 to 2015 when I started there. And so, and it was, it wasn't like they were out there trying to recruit all these students. This was just a natural progression for the, the institution. And, you know, one of the things that I think that we need to do a better job of is collaborating around the fact that the demographics are changing and how, you know, you know we, Menlo College works with a lot of community colleges and, you know, creating those transfer pipelines, but also, you know, just the fact that we have some, you know, you're near a military base. I mean, I grew up, Uh, because my dad in Spokane, because my dad was based at Fairchild Air Force Base. And I've been talking to the folks, um, you know, at some of the institutions in Spokane to say, you know, look, you've got this, this clientele out here, very diverse, you know, it's a great way to bring a diverse, more diverse student body into your your campuses. And I think that's something I would love to see us, you know, get a better dialogue going across the country about how we can collaborate better to bring these, you know, create these pipelines, starting in K through 12, you know, there's the pro, you know uh, promise mm-hmm. programs. I don't know if there's a promise program. Yeah. So, yeah. so the promise programs, I, that's one of the things I wanted to create here on the peninsula, because mm-hmm. we need to be working together to get those students K through 12 to into college uh, or, or onto the community camp. Uh, uh, Community college campuses, because that's a, where the, a lot of these students can get the training they need—the the coding and and all of that, mm-hmm. or the you know working with boot camps—and so there's so much going on, and and I, I just would love to see more collaboration.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, and then Mordecai, we did want to touch on—we we have plenty of time, so we have plenty of things that we could talk about, but we did definitely want to touch on the EdSurge article that you wrote about um, uh, developmental education. And uh, the the idea of a co-requisite as opposed to a prerequisite, and you know, running your uh, developmental uh, like writing in English or developmental mm-hmm. math program at the same time you're taking the the quote unquote regular courses. It was a really interesting article. It was uh, it was well written. So good job by you, because because uh, I learned I learned I learned a lot uh, by reading it. But but can you catch our audience up a bit on uh, what the article was about? And uh, I'd love to spend a little bit of time on that topic
1: yeah you know the best way to uh to 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 give you the crash course version if you will uh and no pun intended of uh developmental education and 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 co rec and pre is to tell my personal story very quickly and so mm-hmm. i myself out of high school tested at developmental levels okay now they have nice little names for it but that's what they they were doing t- they you know, to all of a sudden get a score and they say, well, you're remedial. Well, what do you mean I'm remedial, right? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I left high school with these grades and I, you know, I felt I was college ready to then show up and realize, well, you're not college ready. So I need someone now to tell me what does this mean? I'm not college ready, but I'm at college and I'm ready, right? right so right. Now, now, now you go through this reality of, well, they're going to place you at that particular time when I went to community college in developmental classes. And there were stair-step approaches to developmental education once you made it, or depending upon your score uh, for math in particular, you may have scored at the lowest level of developmental. Well, once you pass that semester, now you're making your way into the next level of developmental education. And it's quite possible that someone could take a year to a year and a half of developmental classes and never achieve college credit. And so right. that in itself, especially nation, on a na- uh, national scale, but particularly here in, in, in uh, the state of Texas, uh, what was being shown through the statistics is that for a what should have taken a student two years to earn a degree was taking them six and a half years. So, and a part of that is, is enrollment intensity. They weren't taking full loads of courses for full hours, or they had to like my self-developmental education that she had to clear. Yeah. So what's happened over time now is, is that rather than saying let's do all these stair steps because it's taking you too long to get out and you may not ever get out because you may get discouraged and life may take over and you may say, I'm not college material right. anyway, right. Uh, which is almost became my reality. is is that now they said okay well how about rather than taking this pre-rec approach let's do a co-rec approach and the other thing that started happening over time was is the defunding so to help on a national scale what began to happen was the defunding of developmental education programs which forced institutions that weren't didn't have the spirit of innovation to quickly gain the spirit of innovation and figure out how to pull that off so with all that said it's now a situation where depending upon where a student tests, they may still test at developmental levels. However, they are being paired not only in what we would now know or used to know as a remedial education, but also a college ready education as well simultaneously. And they're yeah. able to get both elements of that instruction and they're able to get through quicker right. uh, and a more efficient time. Some of these institutions that can afford it are actually doing the shared instructor model where there's two instructors perhaps in the course, one that's delivering the remedial developmental aspect and one that's doing the college aspect and and pairing it together for those who can afford that. But there's some creative things that are happening to help get folks through the developmental pipeline, which is significant, necessary, and turns out to be a waste of time and money for too many students.
0: Yeah, well, especially when there's such a, a problem around, you know, some college, no degree, you know, the fact that people start pursuing their their degree whether it's an associate or or bachelor's degree and then they they don't complete and if you build more hurdles just to get to the beginning just to get to the start line uh you know it's tough you know you're going to lose people who were already at risk they're an at-risk population to begin with uh and even you you're sort of expressing that even in in your own your own story um and then the other related thought i think is the uh, when you're pairing the 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 remediation with the the quote unquote regular courses it actually gives the relevance and the context to the developmental work that you then understand oh okay i need a little extra help because this is the type of pro- problem that i'm going to see you know as opposed to otherwise you're just learning the the remedial stuff as a prerequisite but there's no connection to what I'm going to need to use these tools for. Does that make sense, Mordecai? It makes a lot of
1: sense. You know, the other part that I would say that's now happening more than ever, It's it has started over the past 10 years, but I would predict that it is going to take off like wildfire, especially as we deal with the gaps and the advancements in the amount of retirements that we're gonna be experiencing in the workforce over the next five to 10 years, yeah. is is going to have to segment out even further, streamline even further these tracks mm-hmm. towards college preparedness, because there are some folks that are gonna be geared when they realize that, hey, you mean to tell me in a year, two years, I can earn a credential and be earning $80,000. And I don't have to necessarily go track A, I can do track B. These tracks are going to be more and more and more refined better to our country in the world but our country as a whole towards the workforce needs because we have some significant gaps and developmental education, the way how we've approached it historically just won't be relevant and it won't be a need. Right.
2: Yeah, and I just want to add that that's where that's a big challenge here in California the Cal State system has had to revamp they we went through this whole process of revamping their um, developmental education program at, for the same reasons you know to get students through more quickly and um, you know, there's been some pushback because of the fact that there's concern that certain students, you know, it, it's it's disproportionately impacting some students more than others. And I think that's one of the things we always have to keep in mind is that, you know, some students are going to be disadvantaged. You know, there's like these unintended consequences always of trying to do these things. But I'm actually you know, excited, Mordecai, about this idea that we can really shift to a more student-oriented, but also Workforce. It's so funny because if you had asked me ten years ago when I was a professor at UT Austin, I would have said, "What are you talking about? You know, education (laughs) is just for us to sit in our classrooms and learn, you know, obscure facts." (laughs) (laughs) but my perspective has changed dramatically since I left academe and um, I'm still in academe but you know since I left being in a large institution it was very eye-opening to especially working with um, high school students and Mm -hmm. as you know others who are trying to just you know get uh, you know especially here in Silicon Valley because there's so many jobs you can do that only take a community college education or just doing a boot camp Mm -hmm. and why are we having and you know, what, what really turned my head around was the fact that we have so much debt. Students are even coming out of community college with large right. amounts of debt. And that should not be the case. Students should be able to get through community college with no debt, period. You know, that 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 should be the, the gold standard. And um and and so I think as a country, we need to rethink all of this and and focus on what the students really need. Mm-hmm. And and get away from this antiquated version of higher ed that says, you're going, you know, I'm going to stand in front of a room or in front of a Zoom screen and lecture, and you're going to take notes. And it, it, this more interactive idea. You know, I've been following what's going on with design thinking and, mm-hmm. and, you know, pro- project based learning yeah. and all of these Ag- different agile. Things. Yeah, yes, yeah. agile. Yes. Um, and it's really made me rethink not only the way I teach but the way that I think we should be developing our curriculum even uh, and so it's you know it's really interesting that we're finally you know starting to see this get some traction you know I think the ASU's of the world and the southern New Hampshire and, and our community colleges more generally yeah. are at the forefront of this change and yeah um so I'm actually very excited to hear you talking about it because I I, well I am
1: I am I'm (laughs) excited you're making me excited no one of the uh my my article that's going to be coming out this month talks to that effect of what Ed Surge talks to the effect of you know it just came out 1.7 trillion dollars in student debt that is ridiculous right so now what are people going to do and they're trying to get a job they're trying to land a job we're dealing with a pandemic and 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 these realities, and on top of that, I'm trying to be a productive citizen. I can't even come from under this, this wave of water economically now that I've been positioned in. And so they but industry, here's the thing, to your point, to industry knows what's happening. They're watching, and they're watching institutions not move at an appropriate pace. They are watching institutions not have the appropriate urgency. So they're coming up with some interesting solutions themselves. Yes, and if yeah. higher education doesn't hurry up and, and start to make some moves. They will be outpaced because industry will have the solution. They already have it. Yep, yeah, they're
2: working on it. I mean, Google has started doing some, you know, training courses that are, you know, basically yeah. in line with exactly what you're talking about. I mean, these big, you know, Apple and Facebook and, you know, not, not just here in Silicon Valley. I mean, um, you know, ASU is working with Starbucks. Um, they have been for a while. Um, Amazon. Amazon. Yes, Amazon exactly, mm-hmm. and you know they want an educated workforce. For you know, sure. and this idea that you know we, we hear all this you know the demographic shift and the declining students. I'm like, yeah, I, I wrote this on a LinkedIn post the other day because you know we were talking about this issue of demographic decline. It's like, no, the dem there there are plenty of students out there. And right. you know, we have to stop just chasing the high schoolers. We need to start right. going after the adults, you know, mm-hmm. the guys who are coming out of the military and, and right. need some retraining. You know, we started doing a little bit of that at Menlo College, but we need to do more. Right. And we need to have programs for somebody. And my biggest, biggest, biggest complaint with higher ed is that no matter how much time you spent in college, you should have a credential for that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> you know, right. so micro credentials. Mm-hmm. You know, if you only spent a year at a four-year college, why do you come out? With nothing, you know, right. and that you can't transfer anywhere else, you right. know. If you go to a year to to a uh, uh, four year college, you should be able to transfer all those credits to a, a, any community college in the country if you decide you just want a two year degree. Yeah. Or we should, you know, get rid of this weird competition thing and say four year colleges can provide a two year degree if right. you decide well, you want to quit after two years.
0: Well, and even those degrees, you know, are they community? Are they telling the employer? what she needs to know on the other end maybe yeah, exactly. but but frequently not like if if you're doing more of a skills-based mapping of what someone has learned and or a portfolio-based approach where they can show you what they've been able to build um, particularly with the the vocation quote unquote vocation i'm doing a lot of scare quotes because my language is dated i apologize uh mordecai but <laughs> but like when you're trying to figure out the career track side of community college yeah. Because um, that is um, in some ways you don't have the luxury of these sort of abstract ideals uh, about higher education. Instead, there is more of the practical reality. You know, if your are your students, maybe they're coming from a place of poverty or they're coming from a place of disadvantage. And they really see this as a way to sort of unlock social mobility for themselves and, and their families. How do you how do you how is that different? And can you talk more about how. It's really connecting them to a career path and a life path, in addition to teaching them the the correct, uh, you know, components of an individual credit hour. Yep. Yeah, you know, no great,
1: great, great question, and, and I think it all boils down to this: it's one thing to tell a student, an individual, even an adult, because I'm not talking about children here, to dream and to tell them to dream big. However, the reality is, especially when you're dealing with poverty individuals, they haven't been given an opportunity to dream. They've been so stuck in survival mode. So mm-hmm. for you to even tell me to start dreaming and what do you see for yourself? What do you envision? Man, what are you talking about? I've been trying to just find a meal for myself and my family for the past two days. Yeah. So that's not a reality. So now we start to have this conversation about for us and our approach to St. Philip's College, a part of the Alamo Colleges, we have each and every one of our students formulate a mission statement which is, while it seems very simple, it is pretty unique for a lot of the students in terms of an exercise because they've never been told, hey, think of yourself like a business. Think about what is your ultimate goal. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to head? Which then took us further down into this idea of meta-majors, right? Because for so long in the higher education industry, it was about what's your major. Mm -hmm. Well, depending on where I'm coming from, the only answer I can give you is, If somebody in my family actually had that career or saw something on television or read something and I thought maybe I can do that. Mm. So this idea of just figuring out what is your level of interest and let's get you somewhere in that ballpark. Let's get Mm. some classes around you and begin to expose you to a few things. And then let's continue to work through this meta major towards a design of a stackable degree or or certification. Terry's point where you're able to stack towards a a degree or towards your four-year plan. So trying to streamline the idea and not make it uh, so much of a barrier that I think our historical approaches to higher education has become for so many people. So yes, we want them to dream, but for so many situations, they have never been given the opportunity to dream. So those experiential learning experiences, those credit uh, uh, prior learning credit opportunities, where we can honor the experience that people have and now streamline them towards award tracks. And I will be uh, remiss if I didn't say, it's the reason why, especially in community college world, for those that don't know, it's the reason why community college moved away from the two plus two terminology. Because what was happening with these two plus two agreements was is that it was being found that they were not a degree applicable. These, These classes and these hours weren't necessarily transitioning directly into the four-year degree and the student is sitting there with a a truck full of electives and feeling Mm -hmm. as though now I've taken out all the student debt or wasted all this time and it still doesn't apply to my four-year degree.
2: Exactly Mm -hmm. and that's one of the points I I really harp on and when I discuss this stuff but there's a question you know what do you think are the greatest hurdles to attaining a tertiary education in the USA and what one public policy change would level the playing field the most? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> There's lots of hurdles.
1: <laughs> you know, I'm going to go out there and say financial literacy.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. I hope um, that more than just in these small little pockets that we get to the point to where financial literacy, which I, at one point in time, they say economics was taught in the, in the K-12 classrooms. And it is now done away with. But we need to figure out how to not only bring it back in that form, but bring it back to a relevant form, where our students are being exposed to financial literacy, economics, and the realities of life so they can have a a basis, a foundation. And I'm not just talking about one class or one semester, but that we're able to pull up our country and our citizens as a whole and our non-citizens. I mean, just Americans, let me put it that way, right, as a whole. Uh, to pull them up in the train and teach them that before you ever reach a college classroom, there are some things you need to know and need to be taught because someone at home may not be teaching these things. Yeah. And I think that will help them make more informed decisions because they may be the very first person in their family making those decisions.
0: Uh, that was a, that was a good answer. Cause that was a hard question. And that financial <laughs> literacy was, 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 a was a, a strong play there, but, but maybe building on that, um, particularly at the community college level how do you build responsive curriculum that are like realistic about what people actually need in these changing times you know things change so fast you think about the future of work you know you're preparing people for jobs that don't exist yet which is why also yep. i like i like the idea of the meta major where in some ways you don't want to be too narrow in your definition of your career path because you may wind up on a dead end if you, if you go the wrong way. So like, how do you, how do you juggle that, you know, to, to be able to provide the right skills and tooling so that people are generally competent, but also designing for jobs that, that they may wind up uh, needing to have down the road. Like, how do you, how do you do that quickly? and dynamically, particularly when you're, that's uh, you know, why also agile comes to mind where like, if you're responsive yes. to the needs, you have to be able to, to go quick. And I always get the sense that community colleges, that's why I'm a big believer in them as a powerhouse to help turn around some of the educational challenges that we're facing. They obviously need support, but but how do you move fast to respond to these emerging needs?
1: That urgency requires, I, I would say across the board, a revolution of how our colleges have had uh, tr- have, have treated their advisory councils. So what I mean for those that are not aware of this. So what happens is, is academically, there are industry design advisory councils that are individuals in the industry who are doing the jobs right now that the colleges and universities have identified and said, okay, we're gonna run our curriculum through you, our learning outcomes through you. And we're gonna have this conversation about what's relevant, what's not relevant, where we can partner, where we can't partner. And nine times out of 10, those advisory councils are sought maybe once a year, maybe once a semester if you're lucky, and that has been essentially it. And so as we talk about earlier in this conversation about urgency and the shifting that needs to occur, those advisory councils need to totally be revolutionized and industry needs to be at the table even more, and dare I say, in the classroom. Because if if we fail to, and I talked about this in one of my articles, if we fail to, to to allow this marriage between industry and education to continue to separate itself over yeah. time and treat it as though it's just this um, um, uh, rites of passage ever so often, if you will, uh, we will continue to to sever that relation and sour that relationship. The industry will go on themselves do it as themselves. they're already doing, making their own yeah. learning experiences and outcomes. And so yeah. we need that to happen. We need that urgency. We, we, we need that to, to really just take hold and it um, calls higher education to pivot accordingly. But sense. you know,
2: one of the things that brings me back to the mission of brighter Higher Ed is that we need to be making sure that graduate students understand this, faculty understand this. Um, yeah, as some hardcore academics but the notion say their role is not to see that their students get jobs, which is, I'm sorry, you ask any parent or student why they're going to college, it's because they want to get a job someday. Um, And we can argue that, you know, we're trying to teach them critical thinking and, and, you know, quantitative skills and all of that. But you cannot say that it's, you know, yes, it is my job to make sure that my students get jobs, especially my graduate students. But I also have to make sure my graduate students, when they become faculty, understand that yes, they do, you know, if I'm, I'm a political scientist, we should be talking to law firms and, and the right. nonprofit sector about what kind of skills and what should our curriculum look like. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I when I was at University of Washington, we had a great service learning program, you know, that's the kind of thing we need to be doing so that our students can actually be applying what they're learning in the classroom in the real world.
0: (laughs) Um, right, And I think frequently that mapping, that translate, that's what I was talking about going skills-based before. Like frequently, you know, I think if you unpack when people, you know, wax nostalgic about a liberal arts education or talk about all the, and I'm liberal arts educated and it got me pretty far. You know, there's a lot of uh, amazing skills that are developed, not to mention just the experience of it, you know, which folks do get into that as well. But at, at the end of the day, it translates into, Skills that are either helping you be employed or not, and if if you're not really thinking about your future uh, employment prospects, you know maybe you're fortunate enough to be coming from from wealth so that like you don't have to worry about that. But the majority of us are going to need to earn our keep for ourselves and our family, and that's going to require understanding in a creative way how you can translate those skills into your career and something yeah. you're passionate about.
2: And that's why accreditors are focusing more on, on course learning outcomes, on program learning outcomes, and connecting those to what students are going to need for their, their you know, skills to be working you know, later in life. Yeah. And um, I, and you know, I, I used to you know roll my eyes at that stuff, but I'm you know, I I think assessment is so critical in everything we do. Even the nonprofits I'm in, it's like, are are we doing what? And it comes back to, are we doing what we say we're doing? Are we? Yeah. Are our students learning critical thinking? Are our students learning quantitative skills? Are they able to write an email? You know, mm-hmm. um,
1: and, and I would if I jump in there and just say that I think definitely. it takes a healthy balance, but it should take a balance because I'm, 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 I'm thinking about, as I'm sure you all are as well, the next era of higher education. That's right? right. It is it, so important as educators that we study what's happening from a census standpoint that we study what's happening from an economic standpoint and then we have to ask the question of relevance and what does our country need and what role do we need to play to ensure that our citizens and our our, our communities let me use that word communities are prepared and ready to be productive participants in society and that a large part of that is applied knowledge now that's not to say that all of education should focus on aspects of applied knowledge and preparedness towards career because I am also liberal arts educated. I went to community college, but then I went to a four-year global private arts institution. And I've worked at four-year uh, uh, private liberal arts institutions, so they all serve their purpose. However, it takes a healthy balance in knowing what should be happening in that particular market uh, to ensure relevance and to ensure preparedness because change is on the horizon, but so many of our institutions have not done this work of asking some hard questions and pivoting accordingly to make sure that their institution as a whole is relevant. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah so we're,
0: it, we're coming up on time, though, too, uh, Terry. I know I know you're a good uh, time watcher. So, so I, we're, um, we're getting to summing, summation thought yes. time. Well,
2: yeah. I want to make sure I get in one last question to Mordecai, which is this issue that I know a lot of faculty are dealing with is... Um, How do you, you know, so, so, you know, we have students who don't want to show up, uh, you know, they're they're there, but they they don't want to turn on their screens and it's hard to encourage them. And I know part of it is just some students don't want you to see their surroundings or that maybe they're on a park bench, you know, maybe they're in their car. So, um, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that and if you've had any strategies there.
1: Oh gosh, you know it's it's uh we, I've had the conversation with our faculty. I've had the conversation with some of my colleagues that I don't nece- that don't necessarily work at St. phillips College and I'll just tell you the word that I continue to use. Um we even had a convocation right before the holiday time talking about this and it was the word that I use, grace, mm-hmm. right? Mike, I have to keep using that word because grace. we don't know what that person is experiencing, what they have had to experience, what they're currently, you know, we don't know, Mm -hmm. but we should be honored that they have still seen fit to choose us to continue along their academic pathway to help support them. And we cannot get away from another word, which is empowerment. Mm -hmm. We can get into these different philosophical viewpoints on what we should be doing as educators at given times, but we can never move away from the word empowerment, which I think is our ethical duty that we have to the students that we serve. If we understand and embrace grace and we understand and embrace empowerment, then there's a certain means in which we should mentally be approaching the student that may not turn on their computer screen. I'm just grateful that you're there. What can we do now to make sure that you're doing your part to participate in the class where there are the, uh, the assessments and the duties that are associated according to the syllabus. But as long as that is being followed, we should be able to support and approach and, and be available to our students to help them along their way. A lot is going on more than that. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. I just wanna make sure everybody knows that we are gonna continue this discussion on our uh, Brighter Higher Ed discussion forum. So please join us there and Mordecai will send you an invite for that. And we, follow, we all follow each other on Twitter, I know, um, so join us there. We have lots of discussions going on there and I'm really looking forward to your next article uh, on EdSurge. Um, and I really hope we do continue this discussion just because I think we need to really think about ways that we can coordinate, collaborate, whatever it is. And I would love to, to get you more involved with what we're doing at Brighter Higher Ed because we really are trying to change higher ed. <laughs> we're working at it hard and, and uh, you know, getting more people to realize some of these these issues we've talked about need, we all need to work at it. We all need to, to you know, higher ed has to survive. I know um, community colleges have been hit with enrollment drops and funding cuts, but I think, you know, between, you know, between high school and kind of the four-year degree, community colleges are are kind of that glue <laughs> that um, yeah. holds us together and make sure that all students have access to some form of higher education and tertiary education, as somebody was saying. And, you know, we have to, you know, push our our policymakers to, and I'm so glad to see we're going to have an educator in the White House um, with Dr. Biden, and, um, you know, I think that's going to make a big difference, that somebody who really gets the importance of education, now that we're going to have state legislatures to work with, I lived in Texas for 12 years, so I know what that's like, but um, I do think that we will start to see more support for community colleges for 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 all the different levels of uh, education because it's just we just can't get along without it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I'll tell you, I'm 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 in the fight, Terry, and I have been honored by today. And uh, Mike, thank y'all so much for the opportunity. Even Tarrant, that's working the boards behind the scenes. But uh, I'm looking forward to continuing this discussion and and partnering with you all.
2: Absolutely. Awesome. Any last thoughts, Mike?
0: No, this is great. Uh, Mordecai is a wonderful guest. We got to figure out how to get a uh, return engagements because this yes. was, this is was a lot of fun. <laughs> and, uh, really happy to be kicking it off again. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, Terry. Yes, two ready? weeks. Yeah.
2: January. We're coming back on Inauguration Day, hopefully.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh get your popcorn ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
2: well, uh, I, I've been hearing uh, a little bit of what's going on at the Capitol. It's a little oh, ugly. So hopefully we'll get that all cleared up before January 20th. So mm-hmm. anyway, thanks, everybody. We will stop by